uh, top of the morning to you. And you're supposed to say, and the rest of the day to you. That's what we say in Ireland. <laughs> top, yeah, top of the morning to you and the rest of the day to you. Um, everybody okay? Good, good. Um, I wanted to start um, with a video. Um, a couple of my friends, um, Susan and Terry, are the, they have the gift of gift giving. And uh, by the way, Yeah, they had the shirt made for me. Tested on the sleeve, huh? Yeah. And it's all about having the, the shirt that no one else has, right? <laughs> so, this takes me back to my modeling, male modeling career days. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the things, uh, I think Susan just scours the internet for what's left of, of the things that Bill Lane, my mentor, um, did. Little obscure books that he wrote that I, I had no idea he wrote. Well, she found a video that Bill's teaching on. And uh, I watched it last night and just cried like a rat eating onions because uh, it was, <laughs> it's, it, this, is, this is the guy I spent 27 years with. I was holding his hand when he died. Uh, this, is the, this is the man who's, who said, Michael, I think you have gifts for music. And I didn't want to do music. I want to be like him. I want to be a teacher like him. And he knew I could never be like him. He was a PhD from Harvard. He spoke 16 languages. Uh, he wrote the New International Commentary to Mark. He wrote the two-volume commentary, word, word biblical commentary to the book of Hebrews. He's talking about Hebrews in this little, this is just like five, eight, maybe eight minutes long, not very long. But I just wanted you, first of all, he's talking about the synagogue community too. So I, I, this, this has, this does fit in. But I just wanted you to see him. Uh, and it's like getting to share, you know, one of my, my best friends. Um, he talked my wife into marrying me. I'm not, I'm not kidding. He talked my wife into marrying me. Um, and then he married us. So uh, my son, his name, William, is named after him. So as much as one person owes. And, and in, in a way, if you're, if you're getting something from our time together, it's bills behind all this stuff. So I just want you to see him, uh, and this is him. This wasn't that long before he got sick. Um, he had multiple myeloma. Uh, and, uh, and so let's get this thing going, and you'll hear his wonderful, quirky voice. And, uh, and uh, he's, I just get to, I get, I get to start my day sharing Bill Lane with you. Let me, yeah, something else, huh? Just the, pre the precision of his language and such a clear thinker. Can I unplug this? Muted. I just want to share that with you. And, and Susan and Terry, thank you so much for finding that. Um, but interesting that talking about another group of Christians in, an, in another community who were from the synagogue who were being persecuted because they followed Jesus. And... Uh, and here we are looking at Matthew, looking at the same sort of situation. So I thought, I mean, I hope you enjoyed that. I just love, I could tell stories about him all day long. His, his mother died in giving birth to him. Uh, yeah, and so when you, see, when you see the PhD and all the accomplishments, uh, you've got to realize that behind that was a very, a, a, a pretty devastating wound. Um, but he loved to tell the story when, he, when his mother died and his father didn't, didn't want him. Uh, he was sent uh, to Canada to be raised by two old, uh, old, old maid aunts. And when they were taking him through the border, 
They held him at the border because they thought he was the Lindbergh baby. He loved to tell that story, that he was confused with the, being the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> so anyway, I just really encourage uh, uh, New International Commentary uh, series, Mark, uh, that's Bill, and the, the two-volume commentary on the, on the Hebrews. He was working, his major, his magnum opus was on Paul, um, and he never, he never finished that book. He had 11 filing cabinets full of notes on Paul. Yeah, amazing man. Hmm? Oh, I couldn't do it. Are you kidding? No. Somebody much smarter than me had to do that. Okay, we're in chapter 8. Let's get back into uh, to Matthew. Now, we've, we, we've closed that first big block. Remember, we've got five blocks. And uh, I had hoped we might be able to get through the whole book. I don't think, I'm beginning to think we might not. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep uh, pushing on. See how, how far we get today, uh, and then then maybe we might start skipping skipping passages. Um, but um, so the, the 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 first block closes there at, at the end of seven with the formula when Je- Jesus had finished saying all these things. That's Matthew's uh, indication to us that um, the 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 block the the teaching block is is ended. And so chapter 8 begins, we're back in the narrative, which I must confess is my favorite part. I guess I'm more like Mark. I like, I like things happening, and this guy does this, and this person says that, and here they are in this place. I like that. Uh, I, I guess I'm too lazy to sit and listen to teaching, uh, especially. I think a lot of people found it hard to, uh, to listen to this incredibly profound, deep stuff that you had to interact with. And... Uh, I'm just confessing that. But it's not till chapter 8. Notice this. What haven't we seen yet? If you think of, of, uh, of what Matthew's given us so far in these first seven chapters, we haven't seen a miracle yet. And we're eight chapters in. I think that's interesting. Um, you know, Mark's going to give you a couple miracles in the first chapter. And I, don't, I can't think about the other. Well, you know, John's going to give us Cana, you know, fairly early. Um, but uh, we're going to have the first healing here, uh, and, and, and Jesus heals a man with, uh, with leprosy. Um, so let's, uh, let's look at it. Um, when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him, said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Um, I told you before that the, the, the rabbis said that... Uh, Cleansing the leper is akin to, to raising the dead. And that's, that comes to us from the Mishnah, from a, a, a tractate of the Mishnah called Sanhedrin. So it's the, sort of the, some of the decisions of the Sanhedrin. It's, it's 47A if you want to write down it. When, so when you get your Mishnah, you'll be able to look that up. Okay? Um, and uh, so this is, this is an incredible... You know, an incredible thing to do. And for the first time, uh, I saw the fact that when, when the, the leper says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Um, I always try to say, well, what's behind that? And I think maybe what's behind that is this self-image of this man who thinks, you know, he's despised. No one's, nobody wants to have anything to do with him. And, and it's a very real possibility that, you know, even Jesus doesn't care if he gets healed or not. Uh, so if you're willing... Uh, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out a hand, 
and touch the man. Now he's not supposed to do that, is he? The leper's not supposed to be talking to Jesus in the first place, and Jesus is not supposed to be touching the leper in the second place. Um, but Jesus touches him, and he just says, I'm willing, be clean. And he's cured. And, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but here we have this massive power, this massive authority, and uh, he says, be clean. And um, it, it goes back to the Hebrew idea of, of word, uh, the word debar in Hebrew. Uh, when God says something, it happens, right? Let there be light. How does God make light? He says, let there be light. And the word, you know, has this creative force. And, and, and that's behind when, when John in his gospel refers to Jesus as the Logos, that's not a Greek Hellenistic philosophical idea for John. It's, it's Debar. It's, you know, it's, it's the creative word. Um, and it is crystal clear in the prologue of John. And here I think we see Jesus, even though Matthew doesn't seem to be interested in that kind of high Christology, uh, Matthew just reports that this is how Jesus does things. He says it, no, uh, no incantations, no herbs, no, <laughs> no nothing, just to be clean. And, uh, and the man is, is, uh, is, is immediately uh, cured. And Jesus said to him, see uh, that you don't tell anyone. This is the, the messianic secret that Mark is so uh, uh, interested in. Matthew does it four times, if you're interested in the, the references. I have them here somewhere in the, in the midst of all my scribbling. Um, can't find it, but I'll, I'll find it in a minute. <clears throat> but this is one of the rare examples in Matthew of Jesus doing that. He heals someone and says, uh, don't tell anyone that I did that. And, and Matthew doesn't develop you know, why he does this. Um, uh, Mark does. Mark lets us know that Jesus does this to, for crowd control that doesn't work. I mean, I, it makes me uncomfortable to say this, but this was a situation over which Jesus had no control. I don't like saying that. I like to think he controlled everything, but apparently he couldn't control this. And uh, so he says, please don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses' command as a testimony to them. I believe that is a testimony to the priests. And uh, interesting that in, in Acts 6, Acts 6 verse 7, Luke tells us that a lot of priests became followers of Jesus. And you wonder if this is how that happened, right? A leper comes in and, you know, I'm clean because the priest has to uh, inspect him. Uh, then uh, the appropriate offering has to be offered. Two living birds, some cedar wood, uh, and hyssop. And then uh, the, the, the priest inspects the, the person and declares that they're clean. Then he offers two ewe lambs, some flour, and a log of oil. So it's a very complicated process. Uh, but that's the old orthodoxy, isn't it? over against the new reality. And uh, so when, when you're reading in Acts and you, uh, you see that many priests have come to follow Jesus, that's for the first time I thought, hmm, well maybe this is where they came from. You know, you see a leper healed and uh, that's, uh, that's gonna in impact you. Um, th this next story uh, is the, the healing of the centurion, uh, centurion servant. And this is where I, I, I like to point out uh, that Matthew is what, what the, the scholars refer to Matthew as a selective minimalist. And by that, I mean when Matthew borrows from, usually from Mark, you, you know that the whole gospel of Mark is in Matthew except for 44 verses. The entire gospel of Mark is in Matthew. 
except for 44 verses. And when, but he's a selective minimalist. And by, by, by that they mean whenever he borrows a story, he always shortens it, which seems odd. But then he'll add material that has to do with his agenda. He'll show that there's a fulfillment of the Old Testament or he has you know, something else that he's doing with his uh, portrayal of, uh, of Jesus. And the story of uh, the centurion is a, is a great example. Um, Matthew has, has trimmed it right down. You know, in Luke, the, the elders from the synagogue are a part of it. Well, Matthew leaves them out, and we can guess why. <laughs> He's not interested in that. Uh, Matthew's not going to tell you that this centurion, this Gentile, had donated the synagogue. Matthew doesn't, I mean, he's got troubles enough with the synagogue community without telling a story about a Gentile who donates the synagogue. So he, he leaves that out. Um, and, and there are a number of details that he has, uh, he's cut. And, uh, but but he, you can see, after a while, you can see the way his, his, uh, his mind works. Um, so let, let's look at that. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion <coughs> came to him, asking, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Uh, centurions are very important in the New Testament. We meet lots of centurions. Uh, they, are, um, they are really the backbone of the, of, of the Roman uh, army. Um, I used to believe that this man was retired uh, but when the last time I was in Capernaum, I found out that there, there's actually excavations uh, right next to Capernaum of a, a, a Roman garrison. There was actually, a, 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 I don't know how many soldiers were there, but there was a post there. There was even, they only had their own bathhouse. I mean, so there's a big military encampment right next to Capernaum. And perhaps this man was part of that. But we do know from Luke that he had donated a synagogue, and that's probably no cheap uh, cheap thing to do. So he was what we refer to as a God-fearer. Do you know about God-fearers? We meet them in Acts. A God-fearer is a Gentile who, worship, who worships uh, Yahweh, the, the, the God of Israel, and he'll submit himself to uh, the, the pillars of Jewish piety. He'll keep the hours of prayer, he'll give to the poor, and he'll fast. But there's one thing he won't do. And guess what that is? <laughs> Circumcision. Totally understand. So he's a God-fearer. Uh, and we'll meet them uh, all through Acts. Uh, Paul is running into God-fearers all the time. Um, uh, Roman, uh, you know, usually Romans, who, uh, who are attracted to Judaism. And, and we see this in the conduct of this man. Normally, a Roman slave owner, they, they were not good owners. They were known for being abusive and... Um, the, 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 the plight of a, of a Roman slave is very much like a, the, the plight of an African-American slave. Um, slavery in Judaism was fairly benign. Household slavery, it was limited. And uh, in fact, the first block of laws after the Ten Commandments is a block of laws to protect slaves. So in, Jude, in Judaism, there, there were slave owners. Uh, actually, um, uh, Peter and uh, his family, they owned uh, at least one slave. So there, we see slaves, but uh, slavery in Judaism is not the same thing as slavery uh, amongst the Romans. And the fact that this man cares so deeply about his slave is an indication that he's really been impacted by Judaism. He cares about this, uh, this slave. Um, so he lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. 
Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with Jesus saying that? Jews don't go to Gentile houses. We see this when Rome, and when, the, when Peter goes to visit Cornelius, right? You don't do this. So what we're seeing, I mean, in, in these first two stories, we've seen Jesus break the rules twice already. He touched the leper. That's a big no-no. And now he's going to go to a Gentile house, which is another big no-no. And so what we're seeing, I'll put this under the category of old orthodoxy, new reality. The old orthodoxy says you don't touch lepers. The new orthodoxy says lepers are going to be healed, right? The old old orthodoxy says you don't go into Gentile homes. The new orthodoxy says there's no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no slave, no free. See, so uh, I hope that category is a helpful category to you because it helps helps me. So um, the centurion replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes. And that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's a wonderful little speech on authority. And um, the, the, the point is, this man has a, a deep, deep understanding of authority. If you're part of the Roman military structure, let, buddy, you better believe this guy understands authority. Um, do you know the word decimate? It's an old word, decimate. The bomb decimated the building. Well, that's actually a Roman military term. If a legion performed poorly in battle, uh, the emperor could order that the legion be decimated. And that doesn't mean they're wiped out. Desa, deca is 10. So what happens is the legion lines up. And, you know, you've heard military guys count off. One, two, three, four, five. 10. So that's what they do. They count off. And every 10th man stands, steps forward. And on an order from the commanding officer, they fall on their swords and kill themselves. That's how you decimate a legion. That's how you discipline a legion that has performed poorly in battle. Now, the next time you're in battle and you're tempted to run, what are you going to do? You know, you remember, you know, maybe I better hang in here and fight a little bit longer. Okay, keep that in your imagination. That is this guy's world. So when he says, I understand authority, you know, he understands authority on a whole level that you and I can scarcely understand authority. I don't know of anybody I'd follow my, you know, maybe my wife or kid, but I don't know, somebody telling me to do it, I don't know. But anyway... Um, but the amazing thing is, he says, I understand authority, and he says to Jesus, and you've got it. You get the dynamic of this? Uh, and so don't come to my house. That's going to get us both in trouble. Just say the word. You see, this man has recognized Jesus' authority. He has recognized this awesome power that he has. And, and what is Jesus' response? He's amazed. And this is the first time we see Jesus being amazed. And in in the Gospels, only two things amaze Jesus, faith or the lack of faith. That's the only thing that amazes him. And I don't know about you, but someday I would love to amaze Jesus. I would love for him to say, wow, Mike, I didn't see that coming. You know, I didn't know you had that in you. Of course, I know he knows everything, so that's not going to happen. But uh, so anyway... um, (coughs) When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following, I tell you the truth, 
I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is what Matthew has added to the story. See, Matthew is going to weave his, uh, his idea of fulfillment. He's going to weave his idea of uh, the synagogue community and Judaism and, uh, and the idea that Gentiles have a place in the kingdom of God. Matthew is very interested in this. Uh, he said, but the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. There will be weeping and uh, grinding of, of teeth. So that's Matthew's addition to this little story. And that's all out of Isaiah 25. He's speaking. When he opens his mouth, the Old Testament comes out. That's just Jesus. Um, I was going to make one more point. I forgot what it was. Um, oh, um, just, just a little sidebar here. Whenever the Gospels speak negatively about it, they seem to speak ne- negatively about the Jews, especially John. And in, in, if you read the Gospel of John, and you'll, you'll read... You know, the Bart Ehrmans of this world will say, well, John, John is anti-Semitic, or, you know, G, you know that the Gospels are somehow anti-Jewish. We, th- that's completely false. What you have to understand is Matthew's, this is a Jew, a Jewish person's writing this. It, if they're critical, they're critical on, from the inside. This is an anti-Semitism, right? It's like me complaining about the Southern Baptists. I grew up Southern Baptist. Well, I'm free to criticize them all I want to because I'm an insider. Right? This is criticism that comes from the inside. So, uh, again, and especially Jesus. I mean, to accuse Jesus of being anti-Semitic, that's just kind of weird. So, uh, verse 13, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed that very hour. Do you see how the healing is kind of an afterthought? You don't, you don't get to see it. it doesn't, you, don't, you don't get to... He doesn't go home and you get to see the servant run to the door and say, oh, I'm well, and that would have been nice. You know, it would have been a nice movie. But see what I'm saying? This is an unmiraculous miracle. What's the real miracle? The faith of the centurion. that cool? Very cool, very cool. Um, When Jesus came into Peter's house, which you saw the pictures of, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever, fever left her. <coughs> just, just that easy. And she got up and began to wait on them. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, uh, he has a description of his ideal woman. Do you know this passage? I love, the, I love 1 Peter anyway. He's so present as a person. Well, he describes his, his ideal woman in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. And, uh, and I've wondered if maybe that might not be his mother-in-law he's talking about. I'm sure his wife was a nice person. But because um, what does she do? The first thing she done after she's been sick, she gets up and she's a servant. She waits on him. And, and you do know that if Jesus shows up to your house, he's got at least 70 people with him, right? So uh, all you anti-Martha people, you shame on you. Martha, never does Jesus condemn Martha. Never. You know, Martha, we need the Marthas. Uh, Mary's, we need the Marys, too, who, who sit at his feet and learn. I mean, for Jesus to say in Luke that, um, you know, Martha, Martha, there's that emotionality of the double name, you know, Martha, Martha. Um, you're worried about many things. You're busy about many things. But only one thing matters, and Mary's chosen that thing, and it's not going to be taken from her. He's not really condemning Martha because he's got all these people that need to be fed. But imagine this, Jesus is saying in his Jewish culture that it's better for a woman to study 
than to work in the kitchen. I mean, in the Southern culture, that, that's earth-shattering enough, you know, in the culture I grew up in, where my mom never ate with us. Anybody grow up in a house like this? My mother never sat down and ate at the table with us. She was always fetching and coming and going like a servant. Um, so yeah, so I'm sorry for that little bunny trail, but that's a very meaningful thing to me. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. See? He says a word, and they're, they're out. And he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill. Here's our fulfillment formula. See, if you heard this read and no one, the preacher didn't say where this is from, you would say, well, that's Matthew, because it's a fulfillment formula. See, very important. So this, this is to fulfill uh, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our diseases and uh, he carried our illnesses. Now, when Mark tells this story, he doesn't quote the Bible. He uses this as, a, as an opportunity, once again, to warn them about the messianic secret. So what we have is, you know, the, we have this fund of material, these stories on the life of Jesus, and then we have four writers who have different backgrounds, who, have, who are writing to, into different church situations, and they use these stories differently, and there's nothing wrong with that. They are not contradicting each other. They are not messing up. They're not uh, uh, changing or, or altering uh, uh, the, the heart of the material. But they, do you see how we have four different men and four different life situations? So uh, it's important that we get this. And, and uh, it's important that we get this. Um, this, this. I don't know if this next story is unique to Matthew or not. I should know that. Uh, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Now that's a hint of what Mark is really interested in. He sees the crowd around him, he says, let's go to the other side. Now Mark would say, well, he's getting away from the crowd. And I think Matthew is kind of hinting it. There's a hint that the crowd is really overflowing. I know this is unique. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now do you see how that's unique for Matthew? A scribe wants to follow Jesus. You don't get that in the other Gospels. Scribe, uh, he's a legal expert. The Greek term is grammatus. It's a, it's a kind of a fluid term. Originally, scribes were just copyists. That's all they did, they copied manuscripts, in, like in Ezra's time. But what happened was they, the, the term came to mean people that, that gained a certain amount of legal expertise when they copied things. and so. Uh, NIV translates this a teacher of the law, but it's the word scribe. Does anybody's translation say scribe? Good, thanks. Yeah. So, but NIV thinks it's that they can they've got the freedom to call him a teacher of the law because that was the nuance of the word in Jesus' day. They became copyists and then legal experts, and then they were really teachers. So the scribes, but they're they're allied with the Pharisees. You know that phrase, the scribes and the Pharisees. They kind of hang hang together. But a scribe is a legal expert. Uh, but he wants to follow Jesus. And that's unique. See, that's unique in Matthew's world. Um, only in Matthew will Jesus talk about the scribe who brings good things out of his heart. That's only Matthew. Did you get a feel for this? Are you getting a feel for this? Okay. Um, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What is wrong with that statement? Think, let's think about the, the original when Jesus starts calling the disciples. What's wrong with this scenario? Exactly. He's volunteering. Jesus doesn't take volunteers. He calls people. 
That's, that's it. Yeah, isn't that cool? I'll follow you wherever you go. And what does Jesus say? Well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, pal, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Uh, you think you're hooking your uh, wagon to a star, and, uh, and uh, it's going to be hard. You have no idea. So Jesus dissuades him. And that title, Son of Man, uh, is one of the ways Jesus calls him. He, he refers to himself. And it, 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 it comes from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, it's Ezekiel's way of saying man. Son of man is just a person, uh, a, a human being. But uh, in Daniel, it takes on a more kind of a messianic idea. And Jesus obviously is applying that to him. Um, I have a, a friend who's got a new translation of the New Testament. And he, he translates it, the supreme human. So that's kind of the idea behind the Son of Man. Another man, one of his disciples, and Matthew uses, every now and then, uses the word disciple for a casual follower. So it doesn't always mean someone who's like one of the 12 or one of the 70. Uh, a, a, it's almost literally, because that's what disciple means. It's, a, it's one who follows you. Another man, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go bury my father. Now, what's wrong with, what's wrong with this one? Because this, this is Matthew showing, these are two ways not to do this. You don't volunteer. And, and I'll just tell you, this second man uh, thinks of the call of Jesus as an invitation, right? Uh, I've got this stuff to do. Let me think about this. He doesn't understand that it's a command. He thought he it was an invitation because apparently Jesus has, has said, come follow me. And uh, this idea of let me go bury my father, uh, you've got to know he's right. In Judaism, this, this, the, the, the responsibility to take care of your parents, especially to bury them, because remember I told you that's the supreme act of hesed, is to bury someone. In, in the Jewish world, there is no one who, have, who, who would have said that's, uh, that's not a, a reasonable request. Okay, That's the old orthodoxy. The new reality is that, that, that there is a family of faith. It's, it's faith over family. I mean, clearly, Jesus says, you leave home, leave your wife, leave your children, you know, you go. And this guy says, well, you know, I need to bury my father. And you, have you heard all the backflips out of this story? That the, the, Sometimes the scholars or the preachers try to make this man sound insincere. They say, well, may, his father may just be sick. And he's really wanting more time. And then there's another theory that says, well, maybe his father's died, but we know about two-stage burial in Judaism, right? You rot for a year, then you wash the bones. So he may be asking for a year's delay. I think those are all interesting, but I don't think those are the points. Dr. Lane would say, you know, that's a very devotional idea. It's just not a very biblical idea. <laughs> um, the point is, he has a legitimate uh, reason to say, well, when I get done with this, I'll follow you. But that's not how the kingdom works. Do you get this? I mean, that's the supreme commitment of following Jesus. It's faith over family. It's faith over family. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Uh, Lord, let me go first, bury, go, go, uh, bury my father. Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, that would sound very harsh in a first century Jewish person's ears. That's a big demand. He's making a big demand. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, that's unusual, because usually when a big storm comes, you see the clouds coming or that sort of thing. 
without warning, a furious storm. Now, Matthew's very uh, uh, beautiful language here. He uses the word seismos. You know what a seismograph is? It measures shaking. Seismos means shaking. So his word to describe this storm is it was a shaking. And uh, Dr. Lane would tell us that this is really, this is not a meteorological uh, event as much as this is a demonic attack. This first storm on the Sea of Galilee, Bill would say, is a demonic attack. Why? First of all, the, the, uh, the unusual nature of it. Second of all, when Jesus speaks to the storm, he says to the storm what he says to demons. He says, be muzzled. Okay? Uh, and then what happens immediately after this is the, the story of the gathering demoniac. Now, in the other Gospels, it's one demoniac. In Matthew, it's two. Matthew always doubles his witnesses. Okay? And what Bill would say is these two stories are really one story. That you're, you should read these stories together. Because what we have initially is a demonic attack that fails. You know, what a great opportunity for Satan. He's got him in the middle of a lake. He's going to kill all of them. You know, let's just kill them. And again, this interest in Matthew of them trying to kill Jesus. And he gets to the other side of the lake, and, and are the, the, the demoniac, or the demoniacs in this story, they're afraid. Why would you think they're afraid? Well, they're afraid of payback. They know if this has been a demonic attack, they know. And here's Jesus getting out of the boat. Oh, man, we're, we're in big trouble. Okay? And, and, and I, I see it as a whole psych-out. It's a psych-out story. Even the, le you know, what's your name? Legion, because we are many. Legion is four to 6,000 people. Um, that's a psych-out. Only Jesus doesn't psych-out. <laughs> you don't psych Jesus out. But when the pigs are floating, even the detail that the pigs are floating in the lake, to me, that's a psych-out. It's like my intention was that that should, should have been you. That should have been you and your 12 buddies floating dead in the lake. And let me just, a brief story. Uh, it, this is why I believe this so, uh, so profoundly. Because in my own experience, I, I had an experience of psych out. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, um, Bill, Bill told us, you know, the whole area of de de the demonic and that casting out demons and that whole thing. Bill, would, Bill said, you only get involved with that if you're called. If God calls you into that. You don't lightly you know, enter a ministry where, you know, of exorcism and that sort of thing. And uh, so anyway, uh, a few years ago, we, our, our bus, we used to tour in a 46-foot long tour bus, and we wrecked. We had a wreck outside of Vail, Colorado. We rear-ended a tractor-trailer going about 60 miles an hour. He had parked in the fast lane of the interstate, and we uh, rear-ended him. And uh, I was hurt. I wasn't hurt badly. Um, but, you know, they... They got to go to the hospital. Um, they had, the front, whole front of the bus was destroyed. And, uh, well, I'm not going to tell all the stories. It's an interesting story. But, um, uh, but a, a few months later, uh, I'm, I'm on the road again for the first time. And I still have my arm in a sling. I separated my shoulder. And, um, and I'm packing my gear up at the end of the concert. And it's my first time to get back on the bus after that had happened. And, uh, and you know me, you know, I'm not a, you guys trust me. I mean, you trust me, okay? Um, I'm by myself on the stage, putting my guitar up, and right here, a voice says, I'm gonna kill you when you get back on that bus. And in, in, a, in a flash, it didn't scare me, in a flash, I thought, is that the best you got? 
You're gonna sk- you're gonna try to get me to not get back on the bus? Is really is that the best you got? And I'm not being flippant about this. It's just kind of what was my first response. But what I realized was it was a psych out. He's trying to psych me out with fear, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm as big a coward as anybody. But that particular time, it was just kind of funny. I thought, you know, you gotta do better than that. Well, I, I don't didn't I know better than to say that. I didn't say that, but. <laughs> But all that is to say, I think that's what this is. I think this, this is a, a, a demonic attack. So um, <coughs> I hope you don't mind those little asides. Um, so if the this, this shaking happens on the lake, so the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Um, Psalm 107, 23 and following is sort of a prophetic psalm that talks about this. Uh, the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And Mark, I think, tells us that, gives us the detail that Jesus is he's sleeping with his head on a pillow, right? And that's an eyewitness detail from Peter. And the pillow is the pillow that the guy who steers the boat usually sits on. So the person who should be steering the boat is asleep. And you can understand they're a little upset about this, right? They've never seen a storm like this. They've grown up on the lake. They know what these storms are like, but they've never seen a storm like this. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Okay. Lord, save us. Uh, We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Uh, and this is in, in Mark. Mark tells this story, and he says there was a great wind, there was a great calm, and then there was a great fear. The disciples in Mark aren't afraid of the storm. They're afraid of Jesus. You're in a boat with a guy who talks to the weather. What are you going to do? So, that, in fact, chapter 8, 8 and 9 are basically asking the question, who, who is Jesus? So who is this man? What kind of man? Um, and this is only the first storm. There are two storms in the Sea of Galilee. We, you know this. Two separate storms. This is the demonic attack. The other storm in chapter 14 is just a contrary wind. It's a wind storm. It's not like this. So two different storms. Get, you know, get that in your head. Two different catches of fish. Jesus tears up the temple twice, once early in his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. We've got to get all these things straight in our head. <clears throat> when he arrived at the other side uh, in the regions of the Gadarenes, Remember I told you, you look on the other side of the lake and those where the bad guys live, that's this. They've gone to the other side where the bad guys are, the Decapolis. Uh, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And Luke gives us more details. that you know, he could, This man couldn't be bound with a chain and he's naked and he sleeps on the tombs. Um, uh, there, there are four or five and the, the rabbis taught there are four or five signs of demonic possession. Uh, one, of, one of them is sleeping with tombs, uh, sleeping in the tombs and howling and tearing your clothes and being strong. And so these men, I call them, they're the poster child for demonic possession. These guys are the paradigm for demonic possession. Demonic possession has two points. First, to mar the image of God. Second, to kill. That's what, that's what demon possession is for. First of all, to mar God's image in us. Second of all, ultimately, what happens to the pig is what should have happened to the men, is what should have, the demons thought should have happened to Jesus. So uh, that's, that's this man's, uh, these men, uh, their, their, their life. 
They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? The demons always know exactly who he is. And Jesus doesn't want them saying that. He doesn't want the confession of who he is coming from the lips of demons. Um, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, the, the, the demons live knowing that a time has been appointed for their destruction. I mean, they know they've lost. They know they're going to be destroyed. So imagine that kind of existence. I mean, there are these demonic personalities, personalities that are individual and have names, the, 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 the angels who, who fell when Satan fell. Um, and, you know, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And I think there's a little bit of payback fear in there too. You know, it wasn't our idea to, to drown you in the boat. You know, you know, that's kind of, that's the thing. So some distance from them, a, a large herd of pigs was feeding. This is how we know it's a Gentile area, herds of pigs. No herds of pigs on the other side of the lake. Uh, the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Uh, he said to them, go. Uh, and I have a note here from Josephus, Antiquities 8.48, has a wonderful story of, of, uh, of a Jewish exorcist exorcising a demon. And it's very, uh, it's a lot of showmanship and a lot of rigmarole and herbs and incantations and a ring that has Solomon's name on it. All, I mean, all kinds of jumping through hoops in Judaism to cast out a demon. What does Jesus just say? Go. And it, and it happens. So they came out and they went, uh, let's see what I say. They went, in, uh, they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town and reported all this, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded him to leave their region. You, you need to leave. We don't want you here. The disturbing presence of Jesus. Let's, uh, let's stop right there before we get into chapter 9. Is there anything that troubles you? I mean, are, are you okay? Are we, all, are we okay? You all right? Um, is it holding together in terms of old orthodoxy, new reality? Old orthodoxy is the demons have, seem to have some sort of power. New reality is <laughs> there's nothing they can do. Uh, any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in chapter 8, where uh, the leper said, Lord, if you're willing. Yeah. You know, my, my take on that was, I know he's able, but he's not always willing because his ways are higher than our ways. Mm -hmm. And some people, I think, maybe take that as you don't have strong enough faith, but, mm -hmm. but I kind of see it as balancing it with the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. If he's willing. Well... I don't know what I'd do with that. I, I still think it implies, it, it clearly implies that the pos there's a very real possibility that he's not willing. And this guy knows this. Um, I'm trying to enter into his, his situation of being a leper, being an outcast, and, and just assuming there's probably nobody who's willing to help him. Um, but, and, the, and the other thing, what you said makes me think, is Jesus ever not willing to to you know, show mercy to somebody. And I think he, he's always willing to show mercy. Now, but when you pray, you say, sometimes he doesn't give you the answer you want. And it sounds like a non-answer, you know. Um, but the guy that, I'm trying to remember, in the first of Acts, where 
Peter and John, he's a beggar, and, and they said, we don't have any gold, but we'll give you what we got, stand right. up and walk. Well, if Jesus walked by him all that time, he, he obviously didn't heal everybody yeah, for and we his don't, sovereign reasons. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, we don't know that Jesus maybe perhaps didn't, wasn't exposed to that beggar. I've never heard that, but that's an interesting idea. But obviously, no, he didn't heal everybody. Uh, because I don't think that was the primary part of his call. Was His call was to, to announce the kingdom. And Matthew, obviously, is into that. Um, yeah, no, he doesn't... Ha- uh, and Bill, let me quote Bill Lane again, who died of cancer. Bill, Bill would say he's not the god of the magic wand. He doesn't always wave the wand to make the cancer go away. But he is always the god who enters redemptively into our suffering. He's the god who's always there for us. Um, and that's always the answer. Him showing up is always the answer. Uh, he always gives us what we should have asked for. Uh, that's how I think of it. That, that's an that's a interesting idea. Good idea. Yeah. Michael, you've got my imagination going now. Yes. Uh, do you think there might be a ciphered meaning in the, the concept of verily, verily, which you stated that we really don't know why he did that before statement? Uh, the, two, the catching of the two fish, the two storms. Uh, and also the term of endearment, Martha, Martha. That there wow. might be a ciphered meaning uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew that he wants us to dig into. Wow, that's way too deep for me. I don't know. <laughs> that's an interesting idea. And ver- the, the double verily, verily is only in John. Uh, it's not, yeah. So, well, no, no, don't be sorry. Um, so the, so my, my, as I run it in my head, I would think, well, so that would be a Johannine kind of thing. Let's see if John has the two. And... Um, John does give us like the first temple cleansing because he knows we don't we know the second temple. I got to think about that one. Yeah, think yeah. Keep your thinking hat on. Keep thinking about that. Yeah, I've got a yeah. I've got a question. Maybe I'm like Nicodemus and I don't understand um, <laughs> how somebody go back into their mother's womb. But how can the dead bury the dead? Um, are they the same kind of dead? Great, great. That's a great question. Now, this is old orthodoxy, new, new orthodoxy. Let the dead, that is the spiritually dead people who are still walking around, bury the dead. That's the people that are cold laying on a slab. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. 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 Any, any thoughts on Jesus' willingness to let the demons go into Have the their pigs? Way. Go into the pigs and destroy what is described as a large herd. Yeah. Well, he, I, you know, no, I don't have a real, I don't have a good thing that like I would write a song on, on that idea. But, but what is interesting to me is they get destroyed. I don't know if the, you know, if the demons die with the pigs. I don't know enough about, you know, but they, they still get, I mean, in my opinion, they get destroyed. Um, let us go into the pigs. Okay, go ahead. And then what happens to the demons in the pigs? Although I know, you know, I know the idea that maybe the demons just went out someplace else and inhabited somebody else. I don't understand the nature of demons like that uh, to that well. But what, when I look at the story, I just see they still got it. I mean, they still got uh, destroyed in the end. Um, and and what should have been Jesus and his disciples floating dead is these unclean. You know, we're, we're not PETA people. We're not feeling bad for the pigs. That's not part of Jesus, their mentality. Pigs are bad. It's good that pigs get killed, right? That's a good thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I see it, Ken. Uh, you know, Jesus one, pigs zero. It's kind of the, you know, we've had another confrontation, and, and 
with one word, he, he has this authority. This, and I don't know about you, I keep, I'm sorry if I keep repeating that over and over, but it's a, it's a part of his, this, this uh, identity of, of Jesus that's in, that I'm trying to build in my imagination. Um, I don't know if, you, if ever, you've ever been around someone who has a lot of authority. Sometimes a pastor or a doctor, some doctors have all this authority, and it's almost scary. And I'm trying to and, you know, construct my understanding of who Jesus is. And he's this guy who at one point is very compassionate, obviously very compassionate, cries easy, and, and reaches out to people and, and cares about people. At the same time, you can turn around, and it's like, I'm uncomfortable being in the boat with you because you've got this authority. I don't know. Yeah. What struck yeah. me was the leopard. Jesus hadn't performed any miracles. This was the first miracle. Good. He Interesting. asked Jesus. So, I mean, he, he knew that he could do it without even seeing it. Really interesting. Yeah, that's good. I've never seen that before. So you've got, and look, you've got these two stories. You've got a leper. And by the way, in Judaism, why does he have leprosy? Why? He's a sinner. It's a punishment for sinning. If you're blind or lame or have leprosy, that's because you're a bad person. My sister lost two babies in two different incidents, uh, born full term, died in two months. And someone in her church said, you must have done something wrong. So suffering is punishment, okay? And, but in, it's interesting, it's a great observation. The leper understands, seems to understand, and who else understands? The Gentile understands. So you got two people, new reality. So you got two people who shouldn't get it, who get it. That's very Lucan, but Matthew doesn't do that. But he does do that. That's cool. Thank you. I will. You will hear that again. So in the let the dead bury the dead. Uh huh. What are the rules of inheritance? Was he hanging around? To... Yeah, I don't know if he's the oldest son because that's all a matter of who's the oldest son, and uh, the oldest son gets two thirds, and the the whoever's left gets a third. That's the the prodigal son parable. You know, the the old one's complaining. Well, he get he got two thirds. I mean, come on. And he got it before the father even died. So uh, I don't know. That, but that, that's interesting too. Maybe, he's, maybe there's that element of it too. He's waiting for his inheritance. And what would Jesus say? He would say, well, you walk away from that. All my men, Peter's walked away from his boats and nets and Matthew left. Matthew left more than anybody left monetarily. Matthew would have been a pretty well-off guy. Um, but that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, let me bury my father. Completely reasonable request. And no, you come on, come, come right now. That's good. You, you guys are asking really good questions. I got a kind of a question that, that might be a little bit weird. Uh, in, in the military, they teach us to know your enemy, know who you're fighting. So talking about these demons, I guess, kind of made me think, like, like who are demons? Like, what, uh, what are ways that maybe you can find out more about them? And mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to say, like, what their motives are, because obviously their motives are to make you sin, but how they work just so you can kind of combat that in your yeah. uh, in your own way. So do you know of any like resources or anything like that that you could use? To the best book I know of is Neil Anderson's Bondage Breaker book. That's that's the best one I know. There was one back in the Jesus days, we had a book called Pigs in the Parlor. Remember that? I don't remember. Do you remember who wrote that? But there, there, there is, I, I think we're responsible to, to learn about this kind of stuff, Moses. But also from Bill, I would say, because I saw it in the Jesus movement, there were people who have an unhealthy curiosity about the demonic, 
and uh, you just need to be. I'm not saying you do. I'm saying you need to guard against that. But yeah, Neil Neil Anderson's bondage breaker. And I, I know Neil. He was part of our prayer group for for a while. He's a good guy. He's 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 a good guy. Uh, and I would say, you know, get get in the Word. You're you know you're you're a smart guy. Get your study Bible. Run the you know uh, basically the idea is that demons were fallen angels. They are entities that fell when Satan fell. Uh, you know, was it Revelation that says he he t- he took a third of the stars from heaven when he fell? So a third of the angelic host basically believe a lie and they follow Satan. And um, they are not omniscient. They don't know everything. You know, there's there's basic things that you know Satan doesn't know everything. We um, and they and they know they're they do have power. They've been given a they have a certain degree of power. Um, but there's there's a lot I think there's a lot to know I mean I don't know it because that's something I've not I've not looked into but um, fear is their thing and um, so yeah I'd say yeah that's your assignment <laughs> yeah yes I, I each time I think uh, about or read about the demons and many times uh, when Christ would meet them they'd say have you come to torment us before our time mm-hmm. and isn't it sad that the demons know more about christ and his authority than most americans yeah that's a great point and and not just that it's like i said when they address him most holy one of god you know they they all give him these really grandiose titles which are true and uh, he'll always say don't be quiet he doesn't want that heard yeah and it's sad that they know exactly well moses talking about knowing your enemy well they know their enemy yeah, um, uh, Bill. Bill had one. Uh, he was he was actually uh, in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, he he and another one of our pastors in our in our little empty hands group uh, dealt with some exorc- exorcisms, and our uh, the the main guy was an African American guy named Ben Johnson, and Ben his his thing was prayer, and he prayed with people for eight hours, ten hours. And, and confront the demons and ask their name. It's, it was a whole process that what they went through. But Bill said one time, he was, he was counseling, he was praying with a, a, a young soldier at Fort Campbell who was demonically, and there's demonic oppression and possession. Uh, Christians can't be possessed because you have the Holy Spirit, but demons can still oppress you, okay? Uh, but a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them can be possessed and um, Bill said, he said, when I was praying with this guy, he said, the lockers all started rattling and the lights all started swinging. And he said, when that happens, you don't ask yourself whether there is such a thing as demonic possession. <laughs> so he, he confronted that, yeah. One, one more. You were just talking about resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like C.S. Lewis screw tape letters. Ah, interesting, yeah. Do you know that book? See it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a really interesting sort of switch. Yeah. Sure. The demons, uh, Jesus always said to the demons, keep quiet. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't want their praise. He wants our praise. He never tells us to keep quiet. We can praise oh, him that's, forever. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, he doesn't want them to say who he is. Right, but he he loved for us to say who. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. The demons aren't praising him though. They are scared right down to their little toenails. Yeah. <laughs>